Welcome to the Memory Distillery, everybody. I'm John Deck. And I am guest host Wiley Herman, where each week we will malt, mash, ferment, and distill our way through the spirits of our past in the form of long-loved movies. Exactly. Now, Anthony, who some of you may know as the previous co-host of this show, said he can no longer uh, resist the call of the wild, and he's out as an apprentice fire watcher up in Manitoba. And he'll likely never return to the show, but even more likely he'll be back next week. But the important fact is that the distillery never sleeps. And on this momentous occasion, we're once again joined by friend of the show. That's right, actor, writer, producer, Wiley Herman, whom you may all remember from his appearance on our Exorcist show. Wiley, how have things been? I have been good. Mr. JD, uh, just living the family life and the work life and trying to balance it all. Awesome. I know you've had a, a lot of different things that are that are going on, and it, it's just a, a wonderful honor to have you on the show again. We had a lot of fun before, and I know uh, this is going to be excellent as well. And this episode is actually being released the first week of December, uh, which means, of course, we're heading straight into one of the most loved, hated, or misunderstood Christmas movies of all time. That's right. We're going to discuss Batman Returns from 1992, which, like Batman in 1989, was directed by Tim Burton. Now, Wiley, those who know me would likely assume that this movie was my pick due to this deep, abiding love for most things Batman-related, but you actually brought this movie to the table this week after I asked if there's any like Christmas or Christmas-adjacent movies that you'd like to tackle. So, want to share a little bit about your thought process on why we're doing Batman Returns? Well, it's kind of funny because as soon as you said a, a kind of Christmas-adjacent movie, I thought... Batman Returns, not because I remember it as a Christmas movie, but I remember it as a winter movie. And then I realized how many gaps there were in my memory about it because I don't remember if it was actually ever stated that it was Christmas in Gotham or just snowy winter time in Gotham. Ah. And then I realized I haven't seen this movie in like probably maybe 15 years. And I want to fill in the gaps because I have very strange memories about it that I don't know if they are correct. And I want to <laughs> find out. From from my perspective, I'm going to go ahead and take a guess that most of your strange memory gaps are all justified, and and those strange nightmares you had about strange fish eating birdmen is probably all and totally like true. Christopher walking on fire. I think that's a real thing, <laughs> but it's been a long time, so we'll see. It's like after they lifted the Ark of the Covenants lit up, and then Christopher Walken melted. I don't know, exactly. but um, exactly. but yeah. I was going to say, I, I don't know if they explicitly state anything about this happening directly around Christmas time. I'm kind of in a similar boat that it's been so long since I've watched it. I do remember that there's absolutely Christmas decorations and things going on in this. Okay. Um, and so, and I think there might even be a Christmas party that goes on. I could be totally wrong, but I think your instincts are spot on and... Um, one of the things that I'm looking forward to uh, in watching this movie is to, like you said, kind of refresh 
uh, all the little holes and things like that. Now, now I've always really enjoyed this movie and thought that a lot of people kind of gave it a bad rap and didn't give it a lot of respect in the whole Batman genre of movies. Like, do you remember enjoying this movie or just being weird? Or what's your experience that you can recall? Again, it's kind of vague. I remember liking it. I was I was 14 when I saw it. And I remember seeing it maybe once in theater and maybe like once on VHS. But like the first one like changed my life. It was like this <laughs> finding moment of showing up at the theater hours and hours early with my best friend, Ryan. I was 11 at the time, standing in line. We were very first, I remember, a line wrapped around the Tucson Mall, you know, waiting to get in. And this older couple comes up to us and says, hey, you know, if you if you let us get in front of you, we'll buy your tickets and buy you some snacks. <laughs> Which today, you know, would have been a lawsuit or something, but we totally did it. We let them, you know, buy our tickets and, you know, went in there and the, the movie just completely blew our minds. So like, I have such definitive memories of the first one of 89 Batman, but like, it's so weird how vague Batman returns. I remember I liked it and that's pretty much it. And I remember like the characters, but as far as like the plot or the villain's plan, I like have no memories at all, except for like Danny DeVito trying to win a political race and manipulating people. And I think some of my Selena Kyle memories might unfortunately be tied up with Halle Berry's Catwoman movie. Oh, no. So I got to I got to fix this because I know they're not correct. Yeah, you got to flush those images out of your head. So I'm exactly. glad we're going to it's a public service we're doing here for you as well as the listener. Anyone yeah. who might uh, unfortunately have those uh connotations and mixed uh movie references so yeah i mean really again similar with me in terms of how the 89 batman just completely rocked my brain like i I grew up reading batman comics and was never really into the batman tv show with adam west like i almost appreciate it now more in an ironic kind of sense than i ever did in reruns when i was a kid Um, but when when that you know, that Batman came out with, you know, Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson and just the the sets that they had designed and the music. Oh, Danny Elfman's score. Everything was so amazing. Yeah. Um, and then then this movie came out. And I really think in retrospect, like because um, Tim Burton hadn't really directed much before Batman. Um, so I imagine he was kind of kept on a bit of a short leash. Um, and then it went on to be so successful that I think Batman Returns, they kind of opened up the floodgates a bit and this movie if nothing else is very tim burton um and so so you know for 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 all that means i'm eager to fill in the gaps plot wise and character wise and and just kind of marinate ourselves in uh you know what what tim burton was doing here before the franchise got turned over to shiver (laughs) shoemaker yeah but, uh, but yeah, that, that's in the future. We don't have to worry about that. We're nestled here in 92, and we're going to get a chance to watch Batman Returns. Um, so I, I'm pretty sure right now it's not available on any of the standard streaming services. Um, I know I have it personally in my collection. Anyone out there who wants to follow along with us, if you don't own it yourself, um, you can rent it for a buck or two you know, on any of the streaming services. Um, and so we are definitely going to have a lot of fun with this one. Uh, Wiley, are you ready? For us to dive into this movie, I am ready and I am kind of scared, but I'm I'm excited. And those are all the right emotions to have. Um, so we'll be back in a moment. And uh, ch- cheers, cheers, mate.
Welcome back, everybody. Uh, we, Wiley and myself, John, have watched Batman Returns. It was a wondrous adventure, and I think we both learned a lot about the spirit of Christmas. Yes, we did. We uh, learned about uh, mistletoe and its edibility. Uh, it, it's got good and, and bad sides to it, apparently. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Apparently it can kill you if you eat it. Yeah, so, and this is brought to our attention not once, but at least twice. Maybe. Uh, to, <laughs> I don't yeah, know. <laughs> it may have been three times. Um, but that's really the prime takeaway from the movie. And I think with that, we can sign off for this week. Uh, Folks. Thanks, Wiley. It was great. <laughs> now, outside of the lessons we learned about mistletoe and how charming and deadly it is, um, what was your, your first reaction? Just watching this again, it's been a really long time. I know we talked a little bit about the the not quite tangible connection you had to everything going on in the movie going into it, and now that you're completely reoriented, what do you feel? What's your gut reaction? I couldn't get out of my head what you mentioned about it's the, the it's Tim Burtoniness, I think is the word you used. It's so <laughs> Tim Burtony. And I just wasn't quite aware of what that meant when I was a kid. And Paul Rubens, as the Penguin's dad, should have given it away. But I made no connection as a child that Tim Burton had directed Pee-wee's Big Adventure. So when I saw Pee-wee Herman as the Penguin's dad, I was just confused and enthralled at the same time as a kid. But now it's like, oh, of course, it's a freaking Tim Burton movie with a capital TB. And I got that for the first time rewatching it. <laughs> now, interestingly, just as a, cause you bring up Paul Rubens right off the bat, um, as you, uh, I think, might have mentioned when we before we even watched it. Now, have you ever seen the TV show Gotham? No, I have not. I have. And I, I think it started off fairly strong. Then it lost its way for about a season. But then uh -huh. it got really good again. And I enjoyed it quite a bit. And one of the really interesting things is that Paul Rubens plays the Penguin's father on that show. Uh -huh. Up shared universe <laughs> so <laughs> cool. it's it's pretty cool like pretty much i mean if you don't really think too hard about the dynamics of how they age people and how old or young they are and all these things it's fun to just kind of mess with that and have that fun bit of trivia in your back pocket if you ever right. need it so now he's the age that he was playing in batman returns right <laughs> now it's not as much it wasn't as much makeup and uh it was a more of a natural fit but yeah that it's I, you know, in general, I, I do recommend the show overall, especially for fans of that Batman universe. Um, I thought it was pretty good. But let's, that's not, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about Batman Returns. And yeah. yes, the, the Tim Burton-ness of it is, is unavoidable. Mm -hmm. But the, what, you know, what does that mean, though? Let's break that down a bit. Of course, from the very beginning... We have his partnership with Danny Elfman and just hearing that music score and just especially the main theme. But there's a lot of other really good stuff going on. It just gets me so excited that that um, Danny Elfman the Batman theme is just one of my favorite bits of orchestration ever. I just absolutely love it. It's great. But you also have to remember before we kick into the classic, da -na 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 -na, you have the, the prologue Danny Elfman score, which is way more like Nightmare Before Christmas slash yeah. Edward Scissorhands. So I think that was one of the primary differences. It just had a different vibe to it than the original Batman. It's almost like in doing this sequel, he was also putting that stamp on, you know, this is something new. We're adding more to it and we're giving it a bit of that wintry Christmas flavor as, uh, you know, all these other movies that also have that feel to it are not necessarily Christmas related, but they're 
wintry adjacent in some ways. And so, yeah, that that nice, delicate opening before we hit the hard uh, Batman theme was is great. It's it set up the, the feel. Everything felt very consistent, I felt. Mm, I agree. I agree. I also, as, as we go on, I want to get into why the Tim Burtoniness ultimately led to this being the final Tim Burton Batman film. Because there is something tied in with those two things that I want to get into as we go. Yeah. I, I really liked it. I feel yep. like visually, you know, the art direction and just the direction of the film itself and the acting was, was like really, really awesome and really holds up really well. Um, plot wise, I, I still, there's some, there's some gaps there that just made no sense. And the more that I read, <laughs> the more certain plot choices just completely fall apart in my mind. And maybe you can help clarify them for me. I but, don't know if I can, cause I'm, I'm on the same page plot yeah, wise. Moments where like, <laughs> wait, why are the penguins going to the middle of the city and what are they supposed to do when they arrive there? And it's just... Wait, yes, let me like let me just, clarify. I, I just want to make sure we get this crystal clear. Are you saying that you, Wiley Herman, did not understand exactly what was happening when a legion of penguins had missiles strapped to their back? Uh, actual, I mean, they're not all actual penguins. They had some actual penguins, some robotics and animatronics, some CGI. But like the to the viewer watching this movie, we're supposed to believe that these many, many dozens of penguins are traveling through the sewers with actual missiles on their back. I'll buy that. I'll buy that. Okay, that, that makes sense. That tracks. And then... Yeah, go ahead. No, you keep th- going. Then they get to the to the city center, which apparently is that where they were going to do the most damage so penguin but, could... But they arrive at a four-way intersection facing each other, <laughs> almost like a standoff, and is the goal to shoot them up in the air or at the ground there was just like visually there was no sense of like what their target was or why they were at this specific part of the city well wiley this is what i mean i'm surprised you didn't catch on to this but this is you know that war on christmas that everyone's talking about i'm pretty sure the the penguins were there to shoot the tree down that's that was that was the whole objective was that that big christmas tree right in the middle of the city I think they might have been able to take it down with 20,000 penguin missiles if yeah. they had not been thwarted by Batman. Exactly. If he didn't use his, like, scrambler, uh, <laughs> his <laughs> penguin slash bat scrambler device and, you know, sent them in the exact opposite direction because um, that's how that works. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so the plot may have been a little bit weak. Um, but I, I, I'm on board with just, you know, enjoying it and being enthralled by it. And the, the acting, I mean, they, everyone involved really got to, you know, dig in deep and really chew into these characters. And yeah. I mean, there's, of course, there's plenty to kind of laugh at or shake your head at in the ridiculous department, because I mean, they're, they're not trying to take this in some sort of Christopher Nolan, ultra realistic version. This is still enjoying the comic book of it all and so yeah i mean i really i i still love the aesthetics i love the the style and the ambiance that was portrayed in the movie it all lined up so much of it came back to me as i was watching it that it was like i was remembering lines from the movie i was remembering scenes like that all had left my brain until i was watching it and then i was like oh i'm so on board and watching every minute and just really having a fun time i totally agree i absolutely it was really really fun 
but I think again the reason that it's not one of the reasons it's not as endearing as the first one. I think the the plot was a serious issue. I think even as a kid there was a lot of things that just didn't make sense, but it didn't really matter because it's a really fun, really well done movie. Because if if you had to talk to some you know someone who's never seen the movie before and just you know in a sentence or two try to tell them what the movie's about. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> it's, I'm at a loss, and I just watched it. Batwoman versus Penguin versus Christopher Walken. <laughs> what more? Yeah. Versus it's, Christopher it's... Walken's son, who's doing a Christopher Walken impression. Yeah. Kudos to that guy. I mean, that was pretty good. I've I've seen that guy in other things, so it was nice to see that range of <laughs> uh-huh. of him adding that layer of a Christopher Walken impression, kind of on top of his kind of goofy dullness it was great Uh, but yeah so so it's interesting so i would say it's it's something along the lines of you know we have that the villain is supposed to be kind of christopher walken and he wants to build a power plant but he wants to build it so it can suck away the extra energy the other power plant is making Mm-hmm. because presumably this will make him lots of money. It's like, okay, villain wants to make money. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then Batman is not going to really stop him. Bruce Wayne would stop him by just saying, no, I don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the end of that. Um, but somehow he also gets wrapped up in, you know, creating Catwoman by, by throwing selena kyle a window and like working with penguin to try to help him be mayor so he can get past all those regulations and so like so he just kind of becomes a villain by proxy and anyone he's near and touches ultimately kind of gets wrapped up into the the villainy agreed yes so it's yeah there's no (laughs) sorry about that what were you saying no it's a pretty concise summary yeah because it's it's not there is no arch villain in this movie. Um, there's no one who is a match for Batman, although there are moments where you think they've got him covered from every angle, where they're framing him, where they're taking over his Batmobile and stealing his toys. And like, you know, it's like for a while it feels like they're really on a roll and okay, well, they're getting the best of him. And then just instantly it just stops. It's like, okay. That that was fun. Now they're they're no longer smart and doing good things, and that's they're done with that part. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I just thought it was really interesting that the the circus performers had this intimate knowledge of the Batmobile and how it worked. And how <laughs> By they hitting, they had that button. Those circus folk, man, they really know all about high tech vehicles. Yeah, I mean, well, it, it's kind of like Universal remotes where you get one, you can program it to your different devices. They had that box with the red button on it, and. Yeah, little bat symbol with the bat car. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a great touch having Penguin have a tiny little ride inside of his RV that it looked I like that. the Batmobile kids ride that he used to control mm-hmm. the, the real one. That was that was kind of funny. It was I dug it. <laughs> is the Penguin, is Danny DeVito as the Penguin, was he too gross? It's funny. Yes, he was too gross. Um and I think it was great for the movie. I think it was perfect. I would not have changed it, but I can I can see why that level of grossness would be uh, unappealing to people that are trying to pitch toys and McDonald's Happy Meals. And mm-hmm. I know there was some controversy with the the marketing of the toys of this movie. I'm not quite sure what it was. Yeah, um, 
the level of Tim Burtonness again got in the way of the franchise. Yeah, I, I know specifically that McDonald's canceled their contract uh, to promote Batman Returns with their Happy Meals and stuff because they felt it was too dark and not for kids. Um, hard to argue. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And it's it's like the two thoughts that kept coming up throughout this entire movie is, wow, this is this is really gross. And this is like really horny. Yeah. <laughs> like everyone is trying to screw each other or is like totally disgusting or some combination of both, which I personally love. But again, I can see how, you know, parents and McDonald's would not be uh, enthralled by those two choices of grossness and horniness. Yeah. And, and the expectation coming off of the 89 Batman where, I mean, they just they had uh, a corporate tie-in for every possible angle, like all the toys, all the Happy Meals, all the kids' things. It was all very family-friendly. It was all, even though there was, you know, some violence in it and some, you know, some dementedness and scary things for kids probably. But, like, overall, the tone made up for it by being just light enough and to err on the side of whatever's going to, you know, look good as a, you know, a stocking stuffer or, you know, whatever the, the case may be. Uh, and, and then for this one, uh, they just, by giving Burton the creative control, they turned that knob so far that it kind of broke. And uh, I'd be curious how many possible partnerships they had to just kind of toss out because, the, you know, the artistic integrity of the director was to go the direction of things being uh, far grimier. Mm -hmm. And OK, John, I have a memory that obviously was completely fake. And I thought there was like an anti marketing message in the movie itself. Like I have a visceral memory of a scene and I thought it was the one where where Selena blows up Shrek's department. I have a memory of a bunch of Batman memorabilia in a store hmm. before it blown up. Is that from a different Batman movie or did I just make that up? Like it's a whole store full of like Batman skateboards and T-shirts and hats. And then it gets blown up in the movie. And I thought that was hmm. Does that sound familiar at all? Or am I crazy? Well, you're doing a good job of selling it to me. So <laughs> it's <laughs> just by you saying that you're triggering this false memory thing where I go, yeah, I remember that too. Mandela um, but no, it's, it's interesting. I'm trying see here. Here's the problem is that there's this intersection of the desire to know about all things Batman and the horrible, horrible disgust I have towards all the Joel Schumacher Batman stuff. So that level of camp and that level of tongue in cheek, you know, kind of thing, like it would almost be, it would almost have too much of a message to expect that I think it might've been in one of the Schumacher ones, but, yeah. but it sounds vaguely familiar it really does. But at the same time, it obviously wasn't in this movie. Yeah. So it's an interesting question. Uh, if anyone listening is a Batman fanatic who knows all of these movies backwards and forwards, please let us know if that's a thing. Cause now I'm pretty curious. Yeah, me too. But yeah, so I, I think that there's a lot of good things going on with this movie and, you know, several not so good things, but like just looking at the, the relevance in terms of when we were young and when we were experiencing these movies, I, I think it's fascinating that maybe the, the real takeaway for myself and maybe you, I don't want to speak for you is that maybe the movie, the reason this movie was not that memorable 
as a whole was because it just was so incoherent and hard to to piece together. I think I think that's a big part of it. And again, I think it's also parents that were that were turned off by the aesthetic, even though kids probably I mean, no, they definitely loved it more than the parents. Yeah. <laughs> the parents have the dollars that speak to the advertisers. So I can I get why it crashed and burned the franchise for Tim Burton. I get it. But I feel like I'll, I'll take 20 Tim Burton Batmans over any of the Joel Schumacher ones, you know, yeah. I think would, including the kids that saw it, you know, back in the 90s when it came out. Well, let's dig a little into what you were bringing up about the the, the Tim Burton-iness and, and how that impacted what we saw and what didn't come later because of that. Like, I'd like to hear more on your, your thoughts on, on that entire idea. Well, it, it kind of comes back to what I said about like the horniness and the grossness. Like Tim Burton, he he kind of introduced leather fetish attire to an entire generation. You know, Catwoman <laughs> is literally a a child's introduction to to leather fetish culture. You know, and Tim Burton's films are are completely filled with that exact imagery. I mean, look at Edward Scissorhands. It's yep. like it's like textbook uh, bondage imagery. And I actually had a I had a friend in Illinois who one year was uh, Catwoman for Halloween and the next year took the exact same outfit and turned it into an Edward Scissorhands uh, costume. I love it. See, they're they just they're interchangeable. But again, it's like it's it's that that's just his thing. And when Tim Burton's unleashed, you know, he'll put that out there and it's not mass market, it's not mass appeal. He's, he wasn't more of a niche guy at some point. I mean, he, he made these big blockbusters, but aesthetically, it's a very specific yeah. style that's not welcomed by everyone, you know. And I love it. But again, it's like it's it's either extremely gross or extremely sexualized. And it's hard to find that that balance that can have a mass market appeal. Yeah, because the movie itself, it still broke records. It had the biggest opening weekend ever at that time. It, it had like it made a good amount of money at that time. But I think it had such a steep drop off because everyone is going because it was a sequel to the 89 Batman and all the build up and stuff. And then it didn't have the same legs. And, you know, the after effect got a bit spoiled by the all, you know, the content, like you said, the you know, the 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 combination the the weird combination of the, the the sexualness of it combined with the grossness of other parts like if it was one or the other i think it might have even just it might have had a different tone but it just kind of left things feeling a bit confused as to how you were supposed to feel and react yeah exactly exactly i felt a little bit of both <laughs> a lot of both yeah and i mean i know from like all the various behind the scenes kind of things like there, there were, you know, lots of disagreements, lots of stress that happened during this. And like just Michelle Pfeiffer, just absolutely hating the costume mainly because it basically suffocated her and her movement. She was supposed to be all, you know, agile and all these things. And, and of course you have the, the stunt doubles and the choreograph choreographered fighters. <laughs> I don't know how I'm saying that. But like they had to have been wearing a different material, something a little more spandexy or something, so they could jump and kick and do all that and the flips and all that kind of nonsense. Yeah. But it was just like to have and like the what must have been just hours of prosthetic work for Danny DeVito. Like it just you have such an intense commitment, you know, to to make those characters come to life, and then to have like that mixed reaction. I mean, 
I think by and large, almost all people who've seen it really absolutely love uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman. Like there's, yeah. And so like, there's not much of a, uh, of all the things you could complain about, no one really complains about that. But then you get, you get into Danny DeVito as the penguin and like, you know, I appreciate what was being done in terms of, of that aesthetic. And I actually kind of found it enjoyable in that weird way. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, if, if there was that corporate oversight from Warner brothers or, you know, people stepping in saying, Hey, we uh, tested this movie and the audience reaction, uh, you should tone this down and do some edits and just kind of, you know, maybe uh, keep them in like a a nice little suit or something rather than like those weird pajamas. And, you know, like, Just all the one giant walking ass crack. I mean, he's just like a yeah, (laughs) yeah. That was constantly had blackish ooze kind of coming out of his mouth every time he talked, and it would spray everywhere. And super sexy man. Yeah, prime. But I mean, he he. I mean, you're right. Between he and Batman and Catwoman, there's always something uh, that was going on in that chemistry of, of what's gonna happen here. Who's gonna hump who first? Yeah, it was a race that everybody lost. Mm-hmm. All because Catwoman decided the best thing she could do is to French kiss a guy while holding onto electrical wires and blowing themselves all up. Super hot, super sexy, super Tim Burton. Yeah, because I don't think they even really built in the motivation for her being willing to just jump right in and kill herself. Well, she counted down her lives, man. She still had two left. She said yeah. seven. And then when she kissed death walking, she had eight down. And then when we see her pop up at the end, spoiler, that's her ninth and final life, right? Yeah, they were planning on doing a Catwoman spinoff movie following up with this portrayal with Michelle Pfeiffer playing her, not Halle Berry, you know, in 10, 12 years or whenever that was. But like all, all the... They, they put in that final scene with Michelle. It's really funny, the whole story behind that, because they spent a lot of money on that final scene. They had to get a body double for Michelle Pfeiffer because she wasn't available to reshoot to add in that last scene. Um, they crammed it in at the very last second, so they had to pay probably like, you know, triple overtime to, you know, whoever they could get working on those scenes to put it all together, all because they were confident from their initial reactions of everybody that she was going to go on to lead her own franchise and between having kids, I guess, and other career stuff. And it just never worked out, but it was like, they put a whole lot of effort into getting that one last final shot. So they could say, see, no, look, she's okay. She's still alive. One life, man. I think we can both agree though, that it's a, a, tra- a tragic loss for humanity that we never got to see the Michelle Pfeiffer spinoff series. So here's here's a question for you then. Yeah. If if that was going to become a reality, and and we're talking, you know, somewhere in the let's say mid '90s, who could you imagine directing a movie like that and doing it well? Would you want to see Tim Burton dive into that, or would you want to see someone else kind of stretch their legs? I would have just loved to see more Tim Burton. I love that aesthetic so much, and I love the cartoon that that kept the aesthetic. Yeah. Uh, oh. <laughs> So just based on that alone, I could have watched endless Tim Burton iterations of the of the Batman franchise. I just loved it. Yeah, I mean the Batman the animated series is one of my favorite things ever, and oh, yeah. and when it came out, I love how they, of course, and and that's not actually 
I believe I could, could be incorrect, but I don't think it's officially Danny Elfman's score, but it's the person they got. They based the scoring for the, the animated series directly off of the score. So, but it's so close and it's just wonderful. And yeah, I could watch that. I could do a whole other podcast just watching Batman the Animated Series. Just the whole aesthetic of the you know 1940s with 80s technology is just such a cool visceral thing to look at. And it just seems so distinct and perfect for, for that franchise. Yeah. And like, and, and they, I mean, for the, again, for the animated series, which is what we're all here to talk about. Um, <laughs> it, it's just amazing that the, the decisions they made creatively, they also had to fight like really hard to say, no kids can appreciate a show. That's not all bright colors and lollipops. And they, you know, that our target audience can still be kids, but we want to bend the rules. And so they went through so many hoops with all of the official, you know, people who were, you know, make those decisions on, you know, okay, well, we can have him punch someone and we can have a gun, but we can't actually see someone get shot. And you could have a knockdown drag off fight as long as there's no blood and it, you know, like all these different decisions. And, and they even, the animators painted things on black cells instead of white. So the dead space was always dark. Um, and so there's so much that went into the artistry of conveying that tone that we see, you know, was had to been inspired so much by what Burton did bringing these first two movies to life here. Absolutely. They're totally tied together, which I love. Yeah, that's it. it again, we're, you know, this is a show that's all about nostalgia. It's about movies and trying to measure up, you know, what we remember from, you know, our younger years till now. And there's just something that goes on and, and, and kind of cheating because I'm including Batman in with this with Batman Returns, but it just transports me when I watch it now. And some of that, that feeling, that sense memory, like just remembering when I watched what, where, and what I felt like, and, you know, even what I was snacking on at the time or like just brings all these things back because these were just like certain key moments in my giddiness of things I watched when I was younger. Yeah. For me, it's like the uh, like the video game tie-ins that I was, you know, suffering through most of the time. Most of them were so bad. Like that's the definite, like visceral memory for me. Oh goodness, yes. There, it, it's been a long time coming until fairly recently that video game tie-ins or even superhero video games of any kind have actually been good. Um, luckily, people are m- making good on those now. But man. yeah, they were horrible back then. Agreed. Superman 64 forever, man. <laughs> exactly. That's the only one that counts. Hey, John, I had a question for you. All right, fire. I'm not going to get all fanboy about this because I don't really care either way, but I know for a lot of Batman fans, the whole Batman shall not kill thing. <laughs> and Batman <laughs> murders like at least two That's, people. No, like, you're, I've... Movie. And, like, I thought it was pretty cool, but, like, I guess when I was watching it as a kid, I didn't even understand that that was part of his credo. Um, I, I love that you bring that up. I love because it's such a controversy in, like, in the, you know, Batman versus Superman and, like, all, all, all these, you know, more modern movies and as though it's the first time that happened. But you're right. I, like, I would use those exact words that he straight up murders at least two people, like, because the time when he flips the car on with the, the Batmobile and fires the guy with the jet engine from the back and lights him on fire. Yeah, and then he straps the missile yeah, or the, the, the bomb. The other guy and, like, drops yeah. him down the hole, right? 
Yeah, and it explodes. Like those you just killed those people. Like yeah. you just can't there's no Exactly, exactly. So what do you what do you feel about that? And you could even kind of make the case for the penguin as well, although that's a, just a little blurrier. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, I feel, well, I guess it depends on from from what frame of mind. Like, it's like, how do I feel in terms of interpreting the character, like from the comics to yeah. this and, and that kind like of it, thing? It's a violation of, of, you know, the code of ethics of, of Batman, or is it okay? I feel that it's irresponsible i don't think it fits well with what the character should be but at the same time so often when you have a translation of any character from like a comic to a movie there's a certain amount of leeway that's granted in the interpretation um just like when they did that superman the the not the superman returns but the superman with uh, what's his face uh, what was that? Uh, yeah, Cavill. Um, I'm trying to remember the name. I'm blanking. But uh, the one where he... Superman lives? No. It's just... Whatever that one was where he <laughs> where he ends up like snapping General Zod's neck at the yeah. end. And, and it being like... But that's, that's just like, again, so, someone who just doesn't kill. Mm-hmm. And, and in this, there was this like... And, and the Superman movie was kind of this, this justification that was being put forth, which was there just was no other choice. And and he had to save all these other people. And it was not something he wanted to do. And he hated doing it, but he just had to. And it's like, OK, like, I understand what you're saying in terms of just telling a story. But, you know, if you really want to get into what makes some of these heroes and quotes, you know, exceptional is is they have these codes and rules and. And I just remember someone recently, I think it was probably uh, another podcast I was listening to, uh, but someone, I can't remember now, or maybe it was, I don't know what it was, but they were just saying how that, to their knowledge, like Batman is like this only superhero who has to keep saying, you know, like, I don't kill. Mm-hmm. Like, everybody else has just assumed, like, other superheroes don't go around telling everyone all the time that they don't kill people. Uh-huh. So it's just, but Batman's so, so dark and everyone's so afraid of him. But it's like he has to keep reinforcing and telling people, no, I don't believe in that. And that never comes up like in, in the movies, though, where he's actively telling people, you know, I don't kill. It's not what I do. That's interesting. Yeah, I think you're, you're right. Now I have to go rewatch every single one of them. <laughs> if I had. Yeah, you see you hear that a bit more in like some. Well, definitely all throughout the comics it comes up all the time. And I believe it even comes up you know, in some TV shows or, or like uh, animated series might even come up, you know, where these things are emphasized. But um, I also love an animated series that they address issues of like, why don't the bad guys just, you know, shoot Batman when they have him unconscious? Why do they have to go through a whole rigmarole? And it's like, well, for some of them, they're messed up and deranged. And it makes sense that they'd want to play games instead of just doing the most direct logical thing. And, and mm-hmm. so, yeah, so it really, I think it has to do with the storytelling and I'm okay to be flexible if it all makes sense. But if you take this movie, for example, um, as much as I can enjoy it and have fond memories and have it all just still deliver and be an overall enjoyable experience. You know, if I was going to get into discussion with someone who was just this, you know, a hardcore Batman fanatic who only will acknowledge 
movies being canon if they represent the character 100%, then of course it was a big failure. Yeah. But it, it also didn't represent movies that actually have a plot that makes sense from beginning to end either. And I'm, you know, people aren't outraged about that, but they probably should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's like you got to be flexible with your uh, fandom. Yeah, and I, I, I know, I know how hard that is for people. I know, you know, whether it's Star Wars or whether it's you know comic book, like people just have so many different levels at which they're able to just hate things on a dime. Um, and okay, whatever. That's there. Different people have you know have that at different levels. And to me, it just sounds like a whole bunch of stress that's not necessary. So uh, if I can be at peace with something or just ignore it, if I feel it, it too flagrantly violates the things that I hold sacred, then I'll just kind of shy away from such things. You're a healthy man with a healthy mindset, John. I try. <laughs> Congratulations. I, I fool a lot of people with that sometimes. Twirls mustache. So yeah, so I, I think we're kind of approaching the end of our, our summary of our thoughts and ideas on what we're what we're looking at and what we experienced here. And um, if you have other points, things you want to talk about, that's wonderful and we'll keep going. But I do have uh, my thoughts on kind of a final question that ties in really to a lot of the things that we've already been talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think we covered all, all the bases that I, that I wanted to talk about that really struck me about the film. But uh, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Now we're talking about uh, different fanboy reactions to everything and... The, you know, DC, Marvel Comics, there, there's always people who are going to fight and cry one way or the other. And over time, there have been a bunch of Batman movies and a bunch of different actors who've portrayed him. And sometimes people freak out and cry about it beforehand. Sometimes they do afterwards. Um, and we have this new, you know, the Batman that's going, in theory, going to be made with Robert Pattinson as a young Batman. Mm-hmm. Um, now... If you take a look at the last, let's say, one, two, three, five, six, seven or so people who portrayed Batman, mm-hmm. um, it's a two-part question. A, do you have one defining uh, actor who you feel was the best at portraying Bruce Wayne and or Batman? And the second question is, if, again, if you were tasked to create your own you know batman script your own film from any era it doesn't have to be a gritty reboot it could be anything like what kind of direction would you go what who would be your leading man what would you like to see happen Ooh, i love that and actually the the question and the answers to both are exactly the same so michael keaton wins for batman slash bruce wayne and the reason why and i didn't really notice it until this movie and i'm sure he did a lot of it in the first one too but like he's got such a different uh body language as bruce wayne that's so like relaxed and and almost goofy he does a lot of like really quick physical takes like sliding across the floor and kind of stumbly but still in total control which i really really like so he has this whole physical facade as bruce wayne as being a bumbler but the bumbling is in complete and total control which I freaking loved. So there was a, a slapstick element to it that was completely in control, which I'd never noticed until this film. Mm-hmm. He wins hands down for Bruce Wayne, um, not just on that, but that's a huge thing that I noticed this time. And again, it's a lot of nostalgia talking, but I just, I love, I love his Batman. I just love the way his face looks in his eyes. Um, 
I am a very adamant Christian Bale Batman voice hater. I cannot <laughs> at all. So he automatically loses. Uh, Kilmer and Clooney default lose because of, you know, Schumacher. Um, who am I missing? Um, Adam West. Adam <laughs> Yeah, we can just throw that yeah. in the camp factor. Um, I, I like to, I always kind of bring up Kevin Conroy as the voice of animated Batman. Oh, does, eh, maybe that counts. No, it doesn't count. Okay. <laughs> just that's fair. That. But so, okay, so yes, Michael Keaton, favorite Batman. If I could do my own follow up sequel, whatever, it would just, honestly, it'd just be bringing back Burton, but like Burton Prime, not like post Disney Alice in Wonderland CGI. BS Tim Burton, like yeah. bring old school Burton back uh, and do an old school Batman sequel in that world that he created and have freaking Michael Keaton as old, old man Bruce Wayne bringing in a new protege uh, to train, played by Seth Rogen. No, um, <laughs> I really know who the, <laughs> the young protege would be, but bring back Burton and freaking Michael Keaton for another Batman follow up. We'll see. I. The- I'm having a problem right now because I was kind of hoping that you and I would have wildly differing opinions and that <laughs> is it exactly I could argue and we could have fun with that and be like, what a horrible idea. But uh, once again, I, I feel this is maybe the second or third time so far that you've almost said the literal words I've had planned for a couple of days to, to voice. And that is, uh, <laughs> have, have you seen uh, Batman beyond? No, I haven't. I've, I've heard okay. it's pretty, I love it. I That's absolutely love Man, it. Old Man Batman and, and Nightwing? Is that correct? No, it's uh, it's actually just a brand new Batman. The The premise is Batman has gotten, you know, very old and he can't really handle being Batman anymore. So he makes like a, a special powered suit to help him out because he, you know, physically can't do much anymore. Um, and then in, in the midst of the story, you have the new young character named Terry McGinnis who... Um, kind of stumbles into things and falls under his uh tutelage under bruce wayne's and then ultimately he stumbles upon the, the whole batman stuff and figures things out and he becomes the new batman um but the old batman is still voiced by kevin conroy the same guy who did the you know batman originally and he really never gives up the fact that he's batman so there's this like war between them kind of, of uh so it's really cool and great and so I've always thought that that would, you know, instead of trying to do reboots of the exact same thing over and over again with different casts and stuff like that, that if they were able to like move forward and tell a different story um, that they could have, you know, Michael Keaton could definitely play that old Batman, you know, the, that I was, I was the original, you know, and and he, he could play it and he could, you know, really nail it. And like, I've, I've consistently loved so much of what, Michael Keaton has done in this renaissance of his career um, that, you know, to step back into that role, like would just be amazing. And, and again, Tim Burton, if you could cast away and strip away, whatever it is that he's been doing lately and, and just kind of re re inject the, you know, the original emo weirdness, you know, uh, of what he was doing, but in like this, instead of being like a classic, you know, you know bygone era you know where people are drinking manhattans and dancing the charleston like instead it'll be more of a new grunge tech era that you know is batman beyond is set in the the future where you know 
uh, it's far enough ahead where, it, you know, there's a lot more, you know, people are using hoverboards and back to the future kind of things. And, you know, so, so like to his, his take on that mixing in, not going crazy with the neon and stuff like that, but still trying to capture what would the future of Gotham city look like? You know, how would you do an interpretation of, of, of these different things? So, yeah, so that's, I mean, you can do whatever flavor of the week you want for the young Terry McGinnis, you know, it doesn't even have to be a brand named actor who's great. Um, so that, that's really my joy. Like I would love to see that kind of a story developed, but I also was going to say, if you have to go old school and try to reinvent and start off Batman year one or whatever they're going to do, there's just two aspects of the character that I care about Mm. that no one's ever gotten right. Um, and they, that there's been hints where they almost try and then they just they suck and it's the writing fault. I don't necessarily blame the directors and actors. It's it's everybody's fault. Yeah. But n- number one, in the continuity, if we're gonna go fanboy on this in the in the DC universe, you know, Batman is somewhere between number one and three of the most skilled martial artists ever al- to live. Mm-hmm. Like that's proclaimed many different times, many different ways. And, and I say between one and three, cause everyone can, you know, argue that, but it's, it's somewhere in that range. At least that's how it's, it's dictated and how it's said and stories are told and all this stuff. And it fits in to the psychology of the character and how many years and decades he spent training with so many different masters. And he was just a, a natural savant at all of these different things, but that's never shown like his fighting style, like in the Nolan stuff, it's all like Krav Maga style, like very efficient, you know, little that's kicks probably, and punches. Yeah. And a lot of that's probably the constraints of the suit. I think yeah. It's hard totally. to make fluid movements in any iteration of the bat suit. I'm assuming, you know, so that's probably, yeah. But I'd love to see them, especially with technology the way it is now, to find a way to map that on in a convincing manner and have, you know, truly skilled, you know, martial arts sequences that showcase that like at times, even if it's just a little bit, not like a whole two hour extravaganza where that's the feature. But at times it just have a few moments where it's just unescapable how skilled he is in his ability to move and, and stuff like that and to like vanish and be stealthy and to do all these ninja like movements instead of just having a dark camera but like to really show something impressive on that angle would be great and then and then the other thing is just to Did really showcase his intelligence oh i was gonna say the, de- the detective work right That's yeah and shown comprehensively right no, absolutely. Like it, it, he's the world's greatest detective. That's what another gigantic air quotes. Yeah, I mean that is the proclamation that has been you know coming down the line for the last seventy five years, um, and how often like there are minor, minor, minor glimpses where you almost see these things happen, but it's like. It, it's a difficult line to tread if you don't have a really smart script and don't have a really tight uh, uh, plot where everyone's working and things are revealed in a certain way. Like, I know Nolan tried to do this, especially in, in like, Batman Begins. Yeah, yeah, he did try. Noble effort on his part, for sure. Yeah. And he got close at times, but still. <laughs> my That's my, again, that's, that's about as fanboy as I'm going to get with that sort of thing. It's just... You know, if they're gonna insist on just rehashing, rebuilding, remaking, retreading things, try to really, really build those things up. Find some way to introduce that. That would make me mildly happy. I agree. And and you're talking about you know bring 
Tim Burton back. I think the only way to get to get Tim Burton at this point to get back to his original vision and aesthetic is to do an entire stop motion Batman sequel. That's <laughs> what he wanted to do with Batman Returns. I think if he had his way, Danny DeVito would have been a full stop motion character because he basically was. Yeah. So go full tilt, man. But maybe he could partner with uh, Leica Studios. Wait, which one? Which one did they do? Are they called. No, oh, did they do Coraline? They might have done Coraline, but they did uh, like Kubo and the Two Strings and the Box Trolls and like just uh, like a new age, new era stop, you know, animation that's just breathtaking. And so, like, if they partnered with him, like, I'd have fun, even with uh, I I know he didn't actually direct Nightmare Before Christmas, but like, he was involved with that. And so, some of that aesthetic as well. Like, there's just so much potential. Like, let's just get some good Batman stuff going on. Exactly, man. Exactly. And honestly, like the Joker, you know, Joaquin Phoenix's Joker gives me hope that they are going to do just one offs that have no continuity with other movies and they're free to be more creative with genre. And hell yeah, why not? Stop motion Batman. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Well, I on that note, I think that uh, that's the perfect place to, you know, begin the wrap up of our Batman Returns discussion. We have concluded the only way forward is stop motion Batman. Exactly. Exactly. So, Wiley Herman, as we've kind of mentioned before, a uh, man of many talents, a renaissance man who acts and writes and produces and directs and, and does all sorts of great projects. I know uh, one large project that you've been integral you know, in the mix with is the, um, would I call it a documentary? I haven't seen it yet. Or is it more of a, a docu-fantasy? Docu-fantasy. That, that works. I like that. Um, in Bright Axiom. Uh, that's that's out and about now at circuits and, and things like that, is it not? Yeah, yeah. It just uh, premiered at uh, Doc NYC, which is a pretty big documentary festival in New York, and it got a really good reception. Uh, we got reviewed by the the Hollywood Reporter um, last week. So yeah, um, hopefully we're gonna get some kind of distribution soon, so you'll be able to see it uh, for yourselves. But um, it's it's a pretty cool flick about a kind of a secret underground art collective in San Francisco that that quickly devolved into a cult uh, and got a little uncomfortable for some of the people involved, including its founder. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, it would also be interesting if they were, we had people on the show who somehow were involved in that as well. Hmm. Uh, hmm. There may be a little cameos from yo, yo, yo. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I think uh, while I certainly won't be uh, doing any... Um, uh, reviewing the movie in the sense of looking back on it in terms of nostalgia from when I first watched the movie, uh, I perhaps could take an angle of having a sense of nostalgia of having lived through portions of it. Um, I think that's fascinating. I really, I'm very excited and hopeful that uh, in bright axiom comes to uh, some sort of streaming service or some distribution deal where it can be seen on uh, a mass soon it will happen soon yeah outstanding well uh once again uh really great to have you on the show it was a lot of fun digging back into batman returns and uh for all of you listening we're heading into the christmas season uh, we'll be talking christmas movies christmas adjacent movies keep an eye on our facebook page to look for different polls or questions so you could be involved and then of course uh it's really great for us if you can uh, subscribe on whatever podcatcher you use, uh, Apple Podcast, Stitcher, whatever they are. And uh, if you if you just write us a, a review and just say, hey, these guys are great, whatever strikes your fancy, that's really helpful for us. 
Um, and one last note, we talked about music, we talked about Danny Elfman, we talked about amazing scores, and so I must bring up the song Destroying the Evidence by Semaphore. You hear it throughout our podcast. Um, that's where our music comes from. So check them out. They have a lot of great music out there. And if you have any emails, or any emails, if you have any questions, uh, comments, anything like that, uh, feel free to email us at thememorydistillery at gmail.com. Uh, thanks again, guys, for listening. I'm John Deck. I am Wiley Herman. Don't eat the mistletoe. It's deadly. It can be deadly if you eat it. And this has been The Memory Distillery. Bye, John. <laughs>